Hi, Jessica. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, yeah. How are you? Doing pretty well. It's it's beautiful here. I don't know what the weather is like there. I, I'm forgetting my conversion from Fahrenheit to Celsius. I'm being an American right now, but it's like 80 degrees out today and sunny and beautiful here. You're listening to Board Again Games Season 2, Episode 13, as we talk with Jessica Metheringham from Descent Games about being a board game designer and publisher and her political activism in the UK. Thanks for listening as we talk about all things related to tabletop. Uh, but uh, for... Our viewers, this is Jessica Metheringham. Did I say that correctly? Metheringham. Yep, Metheringham. Okay. That's right. Uh, <laughs> from um, north of London, uh, and she's still relatively new to board game design, and she set up Descent Games in 2019, successfully kickstarting a game. And um, I just lost it, even though we looked it up beforehand. Um, Was it uh, d- uh, Disarm the Base? Disarm the Base? Disarm the Base was my first Kickstarter. Yes, it was. About peace activists uh, doing their thing to help make the world a better place and is working on her second game. Um, When you wrote back to us, you said you feel more like a political campaigner than a gamer and you uh, are chair of Unlock Democracy, which is a UK political pressure group calling for written constitution and generally more transparent democracy. Yep. Very happy to get uh started on on some political talk in this too you, you mentioned so we will just see where this conversation takes us we'll have some fun talking about games and game design anything else you want to say as we introduce you here today no but that all sounds cool i mean this is <laughs> this is just really great to talk about people especially because a lot of people talk about the the surface stuff with game design but i think actually this is, you know, getting into the deeper bit, you know, the why you're doing stuff, the, you know, that's what drives me. So I'm really excited to talk to you both. That's awesome. I mean, we, uh, Ryan and I often have <laughs> very heated discussions afterwards because, uh, you know, and, and this didn't come up in, in the questions we sent you, but but one thing that we have thought a lot about is, um, well, well you, you did mention this. Um, so I'm going to jump around in, in the order of the questions. Sorry. <laughs> this, this, this is how our conversations go. But um, we talk a lot about the de- democratization of, of games and, and how um, games sometimes can be for a select few, whether it's a um, excess of time or money or things like that. And, and you mentioned that. Uh, in fact, let's just go there. Let's just start there. Let's go there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, going there. Yeah. So We're going there. We, 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 we talked, uh, we've talked about that and we asked you the question, where do you hope to see tabletop gaming uh, grow in the next few years? That's something we've talked about with a lot of our guests. So why don't you just start there? And if it gets political, that's fine. We're not going to cut that out. Um, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. So the thing is that you asked me that via email. Now, I've completely forgotten what I said via email. So I could come okay. up with a completely different answer. Let's see if I'm thinking along the same lines now as I was then. Um, where would I like to see it go? I mean, from a personal standpoint, then I'd quite like more smaller games. But mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of selfish. You know, part of that is selfish because that's what I really like. You know, this is me making a medium game saying I want more smaller games. So I might be shooting myself in the foot here. Um, But it's just that I am, there are times when I really like a long immersive gaming experience, but I'm personally just more drawn to the, let's whip out a pack of cards, you know, play a few rounds or something. And then, you know, yeah, you know, do something else, you know, move on to something else. but I'd also just like more people from other areas to come into it. You know, I don't want this to be a to be an elite hobby for just a few people who are really interested in, say, wargaming or, you know, want to play long, you know, long immersive things. Though they have their place. Uh, recently, then uh, I uh, just finished Pandemic Legacy Season 2, which mm-hmm. I loved. But we were playing it over Zoom, and that was a that was a really interesting experience. You know, I saw the board for the first time the other day when we you know we'd finished it. I played the entire game without seeing the board, <laughs> you know, seeing it in real life. You know, I saw it on a phone screen, but seeing it in real life. So, yeah. Um, what what do what do gaming conventions and gaming groups generally look like in the UK? Then, because that's something that we haven't experienced or, or talked about on. 
our, our show. Um, I barely left Ohio. <laughs> so, so yeah, what, what, uh, what do they look like pre pandemic? We'll say, uh, cause right now, obviously everything's different. And, and um, how would you hope, hope them maybe to look different in, in I don't know, maybe mm-hmm. in terms of like where games are played or how people get invited into the hobby? Because you kind of mentioned that. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's all Games Workshop over there, right? Like every, <laughs> There every, is a big yeah, Games Workshop, workshop element. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a huge Games Workshop element. I mean, you know, Warhammer is now in Nottingham. Right. Um but so, you know, I think a lot of things around there do tend to be miniatures based. Um, I mean, I think so. The biggest one that I've tended to go to has been the Games Expo, which is in mm-hmm. Birmingham, mm-hmm. Um, which is really nice. You know, that's got a really good feel. Uh, there are so it's a bit, it's a bit like, uh, I've not been to a US one. Um, I have been to Essen, which I loved. So Games Expo feels a bit like Essen, but kind of smaller and slightly less professional, but in a really good way. You know, mm-hmm. a kind of, you know, this is just people rocking up with bits of paper. There were definitely a couple of prototypes that I uh, play tested there, which were literally things scribbled on the back of post-it notes. But, cool. you know, there's a real place for that. And I love those sort of things. Yeah. Um, but I'm really hoping to go to a few more. Um, we we used to have a playtesting group that I went to a few, I mean, probably went regularly for about six to nine months. And, you know, that was great because it was within walking distance where I was. And it was every, the first Monday of every month, I think, at, you know, our friendly local game shop. And that was, that was really good to go to. But I must say the best thing, the thing that I really liked best of all of the games events, things I liked best, and this is a very niche market, was the the games events that our local game shop did on a Wednesday lunchtime for people with babies. You brought in your baby, you put your baby down with the other babies and you played something really simple where you could just, you know, play something where you didn't have to think about it. And, you know, they had foam mats and things and, you know, the kids would be crawling around. And that was so good. That sounds... I would go to that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds (laughs) nice. We we both have kids and we we know what it's like to try to focus. Uh, Like, not... Nothing makes watching your kids easier than other kids, for the most part. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you're just listening mostly for loud things and looking over frequently. But if there's not other kids there, then then you are the entertainment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, what yeah, are you so playing? We just to... <laughs> so, yeah, we just had to make sure that they, uh, you know, that we weren't playing anything with really small pits. You know, because if you've got, if you've got a two-year-old and a three-year-old wandering around, Mainly they'll be, you know, chasing each other, which was what mainly happened. But then they'll suddenly go, oh, hang on, small, shiny things and start trying to swallow them. Yeah. I mean, I I used to work at at a game store and that was probably the hardest part is we had like marbles and, you know, uh, tumbled rocks and things like that. Making sure that like parents knew where those things were so the little kids didn't grab them and eat them. Um. (laughs) I played a game with Hot Wheels. Try telling your five-year-old that they can't touch them. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's so tricky. <laughs> just, it was it was a very very rough evening. <laughs> so, um, how did you? Was it at that play group that that you thought of the idea for your first game, or how did that come up? So, uh, so I've been playing games, you know, just as a hobby, you know, pretty much since I left university, which is getting further and further away now as the years go on. Um, you know, so I played a lot of uh, Carcassonne, for example. You know, Carcassonne was the one that was really what we played. And and then um, about two years ago, then I had this uh, this chance to do freelance work, you know, to move from a full-time job. I mean, basically, my partner at the time was working a part-time job, and now he's working a full-time job, and and that... I mean, basically, he got a really good job opportunity where we then thought, okay, well, maybe I can move into more freelance work, which then hopefully would create a bit of a space to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, of course, you know, one of us has to be looking after the children because they're, uh, they're nearly five and nearly three now. So they're still quite little. 
That's a lot of work. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So then with all that work and going, yeah, I'm going to go freelance and, you know, <laughs> more time to look after the children. What I thought was clearly I need to make a board game because <laughs> with, you know, with all that free time I don't have. Um, but I, but the idea was was actually this direct action that my friends took. You know, so it's people I know who snuck into a military base to to protest against the fact that the warplanes there were being sent. Uh, now, in this case, they were being sent to Yemen. You know, to mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so they were like, actually, you know, we're going to do this direct action. This is a protest. Um, they obviously got caught. You know, that was kind of the point of the protest. You know, that they had to get caught. Uh, they got mm-hmm. a trial. Um, they got acquitted from the trial, which was lovely, you know, wonderful, yeah. you know, really good for, you know, for the peace movement. Um, but I thought, hey, there are loads of people who are really interested in this. And this feels like it could be a really good board game. Mm-hmm. Why don't I take these two bits of my life? You know, because I've been a social justice campaigner for, I mean, quite a while. You know, so it was part of my job and, you know, it's something I've been involved in. So I was like, why don't I take these two bits of my life and just see what I can make out of them? This could be really interesting. And, yeah, it was. It was a great project. Uh, Kate started it uh, successfully, which was lovely. Uh, still have a few copies left, but uh, that's that's uh, that's mainly because this last year we didn't get to go to conventions and things. Yeah. You know, we had plans to have, you know, a stall and, you know, we were thinking maybe we'd, you know, we could decorate our stall with, you know, placards and things. But, of course, didn't happen because of COVID. So. Right. Would mugshots of your friends be poor taste or great taste for decorating your stall? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think they'd be great taste. <laughs> I, mean, I thought just... too, but I have, I, have, I have a poor judgment of taste at times. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, um, so one of them, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, one of them, I think, you know, really likes, you know, to get out and talk about it a lot, you know, but that's because, you know, they're peace activists and they're protesters and they're like, yeah, you know, let's, you know, let's spread the word. The other one did it wearing his clerical uniform. So he's oh. an ordained Methodist priest. So, you know, so he was breaking in there with the dog collar on, <laughs> which is uh, quite a thing, I think. Nothing but respect for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, it, um, yeah. Would you explain just real quickly direct action for those who aren't familiar with the term? So direct action is generally a a protest which goes beyond the normal, you know, the normal bounds of, you know, say a march or something, you mm-hmm. know. So when you're say, saying, okay, you know, we dislike this thing, you know, we want to protest against this thing, then you know, the majority of people would say, right, let's go, you know, let's go hold a march or, you know, let's go stand outside something, you know, let's have a vigil, you know, get some placards together, you know, some sort of demonstration. Direct action would be taking it a step further where you're saying we are going to specifically and carefully break the law. Yeah. Um, which is why that game comes with a disclaimer at the front. <laughs> Don't get caught. <laughs> oh, I missed it, it the trick there, didn't I? It, it comes with a disclaimer. I, I didn't notice that part. Uh, we, we looked it up on BGG uh, oh. Boarding Geek, but I, I didn't see the disclaimer. What, what was? What is the disclaimer? The the, uh, the front of the uh, the rules booklet just has a little thing saying, you know, saying that uh, saying that we respect the right to protest, but we are not encouraging people to actually go and do this particular protest. You know. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it also says not that anybody should ever, you know, think this, but it says, you know, this is a hypothetical, you know, base. This is not the map of a real base. Not that anybody would, you know, mistake it for that actually, because it's a very stylized, right? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Did you begin writing this um, during the legal proceedings against the your friends, or was it after the resolution? Like. And then follow up to that. If it was during, was it a little touchy at times? Like where you're like, ugh. No, it was. So I think the moment when I really thought, yeah, this could be a really good game was when they got acquitted. You know, so, you know, so I'm at work and, 
uh, so one of them was actually a colleague of mine at the time. You know, I'm at work and this sort of cheer goes around the office. You know, everyone's like, Sam got acquitted, Sam got acquitted. <laughs> you, know, you see people sort of running back and forth going, oh, we got to say, Sam got acquitted. And so, yeah. So it was that kind of groundswell that I thought, oh, you know, that's quite cool. That could that could be something interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that elation, yeah, that, that, that's pretty cool. Um, so what are some of your we'll, – we'll move from there to what are some of your favorite gaming experiences, and then hopefully we'll get to your new game here in a mm. second. Um, I, well, go, go ahead, and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw something in. Yeah, what are, what are some of your favorite gaming experiences? Ooh, my current favorite gaming experiences. So at the moment, you know, so like I said, recently played Pandemic Season uh, 2, which was, I mean, we really loved. You know, I know Season 2 gets a little, you know, some people love it, some people are less impressed. But for me, it was just perfect, actually. Um yeah, you know, towards the end of it, I was a bit like, oh, I can see how this story is developing. Let me try to work out which, you know, which which direction it's going to go in. Um, huh. No spoilers, obviously, but I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know how it's going to end. Is it going to be this or this? And I had like 10 different scenarios I was thinking through. So, yeah, you know, really got involved in that. Um, currently, then I'm really enjoying Subterra. Um, which is the one about caving. Uh, so I really like that. You know, that's another cooperative game. And we normally play it uh, uh, just with two players. Um, but because it's a cooperative game, then the two-player game is actually with four characters. Mm -hmm. But it seems to work really well, um, mm -hmm. which I did not expect, but it did. Um, and I'm thinking most recently then I've actually been playing a really tiny game. So we got a set of tiny games on, well, not tiny games, yeah, but very small games. We've got a set on Kickstarter. So I've been playing Mountain Goats, which I think oh. is board game tables. Okay, uh, yeah. But yeah, you know, that's, you know, that's really cool. Um, but I mean, classic games, to be honest, sometimes I just go back to a pack of cards. Um, okay. My dad really, really likes playing rummy, you know, and there are times when you're like, let's just sit down and let's just play that, you know, rummy or whist or something. And yeah, there's something classic about saying, let's just, you know, play something quite, quite, uh, quite traditional. Do you play rummy with your spouse? Partners? Sometimes. Partners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, keep, uh... Uh, so, yeah, we're married, but because we're in the UK, you know, we tend to say partner. It's a very sort of middle class UK thing, I think. Do you, uh, do you do uh, 500 or do you do a perpetual count? 500, generally. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of people are like, no, no, you know, play the classic rummy. But I'm like, no, no, 500. Five, no, 500 it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, how how would you since you like playing card games? How would you explain what taking a trick is in a game? Um, I, I saw this debate on, on Twitter a couple weeks ago, and it really piqued my interest because some people, um, I think like Jeff Engelstein and others, were like, "You don't need to define that." I, I might be getting wrong whether he which side mm. of the debate he was on, but it was it was a full on debate for a little bit. Um, how, how would you define taking a, a trick? And, and if you needed to put it in a real book, a rule book, what would you say mm. about it? I mean, that is a difficult one, actually, because some people, because it's one of those things that just comes so instinctively to a lot of people. Right. You know, you've played it for a while. You're like, yeah, of course, you know, you do this. Um, I think I'd say that, I think I'd start with a standard pack of cards. You know, clearly you can have, you know, taking a trick with multiple card games. You know, it doesn't need to be a standard pack of cards. But I'd say, okay, taking a trick is where you all put one into the middle. Uh, we, yeah, you choose what card from your hand you're going to put into the middle. Um, the The... The numbers, the numbers count up, the suits count up, and one suit you've decided will trump the lot of them. And you are generally trying to be the highest, but sometimes you're trying to, trying to be the lowest. 
you know, I think that's what I'd say. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now, I, I, I didn't prepare you for that question, yeah. so don't, don't feel bad. That seems a little bit lengthy, though. But the thing is that I'm not, you know, that great at the elevator pitch, so. I, I, I think a lot of people are struggling with that, too, because so many people, they, they just play the games intuitively, whether uh, whatever their, their, their card game is, whether it's Pinochle or, or whatever, uh, that they're used to. And, and then they come to it, and they're like, how do I explain what I'm doing to somebody who's never done this before? Yeah. Well, like yeah. trick taking isn't, it's a rule, but it's also like, it's how you would describe certain games. So like, while it's a rule of a game and rules usually have a description, but since it's its whole game, Rummy is a trick taking game. People are like, Oh yeah, yeah. I know how to play Rummy. So why would you ever have to describe it? Except for, for all of the people that don't know how to play Rummy. Yeah. 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 Or, or the person you're sort of game. like, you know, how do you, yeah, how do you do this or that when it's something that's well-established? Right. One of the things I struggled with, because I did have this for Disarm the Base, was defining uh, what I called the hidden hand. So when you lay mm. four cards face down on the table and then you put four cards face up on the table and you can only reveal the card underneath when you've used the card on the top. So, you know, which is, again, it's standard for, I mean, some games, you know, there's a particular mm-hmm. game we play in the UK, which I'm not going to say because it's got a rude name, mm-hmm. um, very popular among students, um, which probably has all sorts of other names, you know, but it's one of those ones where, you know, quite often you have games where you have, you know, you have cards which are hidden on the table and you can only reveal them once uh-huh. you've used the one on the top. So... Coming to your, your current game, then, um, how has all that, your, your favorite gaming experiences, your political activism, your last game design, how has that informed your current game design? What's going well there for you? Um, yeah, let's just talk about that, right? Because you're you're trying to get ready yeah. for, um, sorry, I'm pulling up my notes here. Uh, That's okay. July, Library right? Labyrinth. July. Um, Hopefully. Hopefully, okay. <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, at this point, you're, you're probably completely done with all your game design, right? It's just getting the production stuff done. Right. Oh. Well, it's the production stuff, but it's also the prototype. Okay. But also, ah, we, okay. I mean, the thing is that, you know, you're never quite completely done. You know, you think something is done, mm-hmm. and then and then you play test it with a different group of people, and they go, oh, that bit didn't work or whatever. And you think, oh, no, we, we need to switch this out or that about. Um, but it is very much the tweaks. You know, it's saying, okay, does that need a big boss monster at the end or does it need two smaller boss monsters? You know, what actually works? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, sometimes there's a point you just have to say, hey, this game is done. I'm going to stop tweaking it because otherwise you'll just go on forever. Um, but Library Labyrinth is a um, a sort of midweight, fairly lightweight, gateway type type game, um, which is about uh, famous fictional women plus historic women. So you're building this this team of characters, you know, who are all real characters in some way you know you can go and look them up somewhere else you know, some of them will be fictional some will be real life people um, but you're building this team to uh, put literary horrors back in the books so you're in a library things have started escaping from the books you've got dracula over there maybe you've got mount doom over there in the corner you know, you've got uh, you've got Martian robots from War of the Worlds. You know, you've got a basilisk over there. Trifford's behind you. You know, you're like, okay, we have to put these things back in the books before they escape and you know go elsewhere. Um, yeah. So so you're collecting these book characters. You know, so it's a little bit of. I mean, it's not quite set collection. You know, but you are collecting the various characters because they all have specific skills which will help you to to put these things back um so we've kind of been thinking about it sometimes like it's a diceless dungeon crawler almost there's no dice (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there's no it's not like you're somebody who's building up your skills 
you're basically assembling this, you know, this crack team. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I, I could tell in, in your email um, responses, you, you mentioned uh, Forbidden Island, and um, mm. I, I could tell some of the influence there from Forbidden Island, for, for, for Forbidden Desert. I watched uh, one yeah. of your uh, playthroughs using uh, Tabletop Simulator. Um, I, I, I like what's, what's going on. Uh, what draws you to co-op games of this type then? Because uh, you've you've mentioned a couple. Mm. Of, I mean, you mentioned Subterra too and Pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. What, what what draws you to that type of experience? So I think especially yeah, I mean co-op games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially um, the designer. Co-op games are definitely where I'm at at the moment. I mean, there is there is to be honest that selfish thing about what do you want to play, you know? So I'm like, hey, actually, you know. That's what I prefer playing. Um, I mean, right now, maybe in a few years' time, I might be back to you know some of the uh, uh, the more competitive ones. Though tile laying games are something else that I really enjoy. You know, you've probably gathered that from the Carcassonne and the Subterra. You know, really like Alhambra. It's a classic, but you know, I actually really like that kind of yeah, you know, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think. Yeah, the the cooperative uh, gameplay really appeals to me because, firstly, you know, you are working together as a team, which is something that I am uh, not instinctively good at in real life. You know, I am one of those people who's like, okay, I've got to carry a mattress up some stairs. I will deliberately make sure that I have it delivered for a time when nobody else is in. So nobody has to see me doing that. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of, which is a real life story. It has happened. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you know, but it's that kind of thing where, you know, some people are really, really good at, you know, working as a team, you know, they're good at sports and things, you know, and I'm less good at that. But I think for that reason, co-op games stretch me a little more, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps they're a little bit more roller coaster because I have to go, ooh, you know, how can we work together? What is actually going to happen? How are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. But then the flip side, you know, I think probably my favorite childhood game when I was younger was uh, was Cluedo, a clue to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, which, of course, is a very <laughs> hidden, you know, lots of hidden information. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how do you prevent the, the quarterbacking element? I, I mean, rather other than just excluding somebody from your, your group, how do you prevent that in the way that you design the game? I mean, that is really difficult. You know, it is. <laughs> yeah. And um, we were thinking about that because our original uh, prototypes, well, you know, the original thought, you know, say back in January or so, was let's have it a really cooperative game. Let's lean into this and say, hey, we recognize the, you know, the alpha gamer problem. You know, we recognize that people will try to quarterback. And let's just say, look, this is a game where, you know, we want you to recognize that and therefore it won't happen. And that was a mistake because that completely did not happen. (laughs) I mean, with some, sure, you know, with some players, you know, you Mm -hmm. had that and they were like, oh, yeah, okay, I understand. Because for a while we uh, we had no turns really belonging to any person. You know, it was like, you know, that uh, that that the that a player token rotated, and that player had a veto, but they could move the other player's pieces. Huh. You know, and okay, yeah, that that could happen for any turn, and that definitely, you know, when you got a certain type of person, then then that completely threw it out the window. It was like, okay. We have clearly not solved that problem, <laughs> but you know we kind of knew that anyway. Um, so what we have at the moment is we have a not quite a split turn, but we have a um, for every turn that a player has, and it goes around in the normal way. Then you can you've got six actions you can play on your turn. You have to take three of them yourself, but mm. you can choose to move other players for the other three. So it's as if you all have uh, whatever the pandemic power is. You know, which one is it? The administrator who does that? 
You know, there's one of the characters in Pandemic who does it anyway. You know, so it's as if you all have that power. Okay. Um, but but yeah, and we found that 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 did help because it meant that players were more willing to move the other players' pieces when they hadn't been quarterbacking. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, I, I I like that. Um, with uh, I mean, I mean, you you had a lot to pick from from all your characters. And everything. How, how do you pronounce the uh, the poet priestess who is in your artwork that that you're showcasing the game for? Um, so you, I have to have a run up of this one. I think it's okay. um, uh, oh, uh, think it's I think it's Henhudwana. Okay, Hen-Hudwana. that's why. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's what I was asking because because I, I looked at it and I, I was like, I I'm gonna forget how to pronounce this. <laughs> we need to have a pronunciation guide on it. In fact, you know, so yeah, because it's a really funny syllable in the middle. But we looked it up and somebody was saying it. But it's harder for me because words which start start with a vowel are always harder for me. Uh, I had a really bad speech impediment when I was younger, and it stuck with me in. Just really that regard that names and things that begin with a vowel are a little bit difficult, which is obviously why I married somebody whose you know, <laughs> name begins with a vowel. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the sensible choices we make in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now I'm thinking about a lot. Of, but um, no, you, you, you pronounced it great. I, I, I would have butchered it completely. So, uh, um, how did you decide which characters to include uh, um, among all these uh, different women and uh, non-binary people? Um, because you had a lot to choose from. And I, I think, it, at least to me, it would probably feel like when you choose one, you're definitely probably excluding somebody else. So, <laughs> so how, how did you go about that process uh, of deciding these are the important ones for uh, my game? So... To a certain extent, we haven't chosen them all. You oh, know, the okay. lists the lists have not been nailed down. You know, they're not okay. set in stone yet. We do have uh, probably a core of about, you know, so we're saying we're going to have 100. We've got a core of probably about 50 or so mm. who we're saying, actually, these characters, we thought about who they are. You know, we've balanced the skills carefully with the horrors so that when you've got the level one, you know, monsters and things that come out here, because a lot of them are not monsters. You know, there's the Forest of Thorns, which is sort of, you know, a Sleeping Beauty type thing. But Mm. that's not a monster as such, you know, not in the way that, you know, that Cerberus, you know, is a monster. Um, So, yeah, so we've got, you know, we've got those, you know, we've got some of them which are very much balanced. And then we need to decide on the rest because we have a long list, which is just like this, you know, it's this amazing long list and it's got so many people on them. But we also really want to make sure that whatever list we finally end up with, that that is a list which is uh, relatively balanced across the world. Mm. I mean, this game will have, I mean, for a start, we can't use uh, fictional characters um, which are still in copyright. So right. that basically means 70 years from the death of the author. Mm-hmm. Um, so things written in about 1910 are normally okay. 1920 is often okay. You know, 1940, you're pushing it generally. A lot, a lot of Conan characters recently just became copyright proof. <laughs> ah, well, there we I go. Mean, I can think of zero female characters from Conan stories. But. I don't know that you'd want, yeah. <laughs> Conan is, what, a, what a rich time for, for writing fantasy in the 1920s. So, well, it's really interesting. You know, you look through some of those, you know, stories and Tarzan, for example. Ah, oh, did you know there were about 20 Tarzan books? Yes. And right. they're all the same, apart from the first one, yeah. <laughs> practically. Well, you said the, the, the Forest of Thorns wasn't a big bad guy, but in the original Sleeping Beauty story, how she was awoken, I would say that Prince Charming was a pretty bad guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly in a version that I read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, at least one version I read. The, version, you know, yeah. True Love's Kiss is not him, but the baby latching. 
yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, that's uh, (laughs) (laughs) when we get to uh, to some of the big, you know, the bigger, badder horrors, some of them are not really well, some of them are quite meta. Uh, we've got doubt in there, plague is in there, nightmares, which I mean, nightmares to me is really uh, the uh, the island of dreams from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Mm, Um, so. Yeah, you know, they get there and, you know, they think it's the island of dreams and, you know, that's what they've been talking about. And actually what it means is that it's, you know, the island of nightmares, yeah. you know, the bad dreams. <laughs> um, but you, you uh, have... yeah, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, yes, about trying to balance it across the world. Yeah. Because yeah. there, so we are from the UK, you know, we're all British. We do have, you know, uh, we're a team, you know, there are five of us in the team at the moment. We have very mixed heritages Mm. um so we've got one person who's british chinese we've got one person who's british caribbean um but you know so this library will you know be will probably have more characters from the uk you know because that's what we've been reading you know that's you know that's where our literary roots are Mm -hmm. but we also have uh, the thing where we're trying to balance it across the world. You know, we don't want this to be a very white, very middle class library because, well, firstly, that's no fun, but also that, you know, that kind of excludes the great literary traditions out there. You know, mm-hmm. particularly if you're thinking about uh, the Japanese lit- uh, the Japanese literary tradition, the Chinese literary tradition, you know, and they have classics that go far beyond, you know, far deeper than yeah, yeah. the european classics yeah which is why it's great to have someone on the team who has that history and that knowledge and can tell us you know which characters are which and you know why we should be representing this character with this and not that yeah that's awesome um do you have uh, how do i put this without getting too heady ryan told me i get too heady sometimes no. um so uh <laughs> You know, one of my favorite short stories, of course, I can't think of the name right now, but uh, Kafka, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, do, you, do you have anything like that where, where the horror is the modern uh, sense of self and <laughs> doubting self and, and, and defeating that? Where, where, do you where, mean, should we have a giant dung beetle in there? Well, no, well, I mean, that, <laughs> well, that's no. just allegory, no, right? You're thinking more of the trial. Right, right, because, I, I mean, you, you yeah. mentioned... Like like mm. like nightmares and, and fear and totalitarianism like like but I mean yeah. that, especially this last year that's a pretty big deal for a lot of people that's a huge monster of like oh yeah with myself and existence yeah <laughs> so, um, uh, I mean self doubt and anxiety I mean that yes. is yeah but it's yeah so the answer is definitely want to get something in there about that. We've been talking to the Mary Seacole Trust, which is a UK charity. Um, mm. They have a youth council, uh, which is great, by the way. You know, should you ever want to know how your game works or whether it makes sense or whatever, go and talk to a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> I mean, really nice, polite teenagers, but still, you know, they're teenagers and you're like, oh, okay, right. How do I explain this to these teenagers on Zoom? Um, so, uh, so yeah, we've been talking to them and they have been, you know, they picked up really upon some of the, the horrors being things like doubt. They were saying, mm. oh, yeah, you know, things like anxiety, that's a thing. You know, can we lean into the mental health aspect, mm. which was really interesting because it was a not quite a side thing, but it was less important to us. And we were thinking, oh, they've picked up on that. That's fascinating. You've picked up on this. Clearly, we should lean into this. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I, I just like... Um, have you played Obscurio at all? I haven't, about? actually. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Um, so it's semi-co-op in, in terms of the fact that, like, uh, it was the follow up to Mysterium. If you, have you played that one? Yes, yeah, I do love Mysterium. Okay, so I like Obscurio slightly better. Um, Obscurio, you're in a library, you're trying to escape uh, mm-hmm. a sorcerer who's trapped you there, and then one of your, your teammates is working with the sorcerer to keep you there. Mm. Um, 
I have had this described to me before. Now you say it, I'm like, oh, yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> but well, I haven't well, played it. Okay. Uh, and maybe it would be helpful. Maybe it wouldn't. But uh, like, as I saw you playing your game, it reminded me of that in, in terms of like um, setting that here are the, these things that are, are surrounding. I don't know. I have a vivid imagination. <laughs> here are these things that are surrounding me. And um, how do I say this? The, 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 uh, that I, ha- I, I have to defeat them both internally and externally. Um, mm. and, and, and that's what, what I thought of when I saw your game. So I think you're just focusing on Star Wars a lot. Isn't, isn't that what he does when he has to fight himself in like the... Oh, in the tree? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> See, I, I wasn't even going to Star Wars at all. Okay, anyways. All right, so back to your game. Um, what is the biggest... And more a practical question. What is the biggest challenge with game design or production that you've had so far? Um, so... Logistics can be pretty challenging, actually. Working out when things need to be done. You know, mm-hmm. you're saying... Okay, so we need the artwork in order to tell people about this. But then we need the mechanics, and that also feeds into the artwork because we're not entirely sure how many of those cards we're going to need. Then we need prototypes, and we need them by this date so people can play it. But, hey, we haven't quite finished doing that bit, so how can we have that bit done? So it's that kind of timetabling of it, which Mm. is really tricky, and I completely see how people can just let a game, you know, let the development stage go on forever and ever and ever, because it is so tempting to do that. Um, We're probably going out to Kickstarter, I mean, definitely much earlier than many people would. You know, we're going out and we're saying, we haven't got a, you know, a fair number of artwork, you know, bits done. You know, we've got some of the characters, we've got the boards, but there's a lot of characters we haven't even touched in terms of artwork. And so I think, you know, a lot of people would perhaps say, oh, hang on, this feels half finished. To which the reply is, well, yeah, it is half finished. It's because we're trying to kickstart it. Um, But yeah, it's just trying to get all those things to line up. That, I think, is probably the biggest challenge. That yeah. and finding time when the children are sleeping or doing something else are always tricky. Um, in your response, you also mentioned that you learned to draw. What was that like? I have for learned you? to draw. Ah, oh, I have learned to draw. I have uh, bought myself Procreate and I've been learning to draw on there. And it's really interesting because, because I haven't drawn anything properly for years. Uh, you know, a few things here and there. Uh, my line drawings have always been fairly okay, but there's always been a lot of rubbing out first. Whereas, of course, now drawing on an iPad, it's like, oh, oh, that's easy. I don't have to make lines. I don't have to do multiple drops. I can just redo it. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's been really interesting, actually. Uh, trying to s- Starting relatively small, but yeah, sort of building up to some of the, you know, to, you know, to drawing books, you know, the backs of the cards will probably have my artwork on, you know, the, uh, the logo is actually mine. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of things I'm looking at that now. And I'm thinking, now that I know some of the stuff that you can actually do in this, this, uh, this program, I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. So I did lots of things I did the long way around. Mm-hmm. But this is not a show about Procreate. <laughs> this week's sponsor. No. Um, <laughs> Today <laughs> we're sponsoring. <laughs> yeah, the sponsors yeah. are yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, what, what have you learned about working as a team? You mentioned some of your, your teammates mm. and working with them. Um, you, you mentioned to us in your written response that uh, it's more than just a designer having a thought and then getting an artist to do it. Do you want to tell us more mm. about that process? Yeah, I mean, that. That's always been the case, I think. I mean, or at least, you know, I think when a designer and a, yeah, so when the designer is working well with the artist, then that is definitely feeding back and there's a loop in there. Uh, I mean, certainly when I was uh, doing Disarm the Bass, there were only two of us there, you know, me and the artist, mm-hmm. um, you know, so me and Mark. And it was really interesting because he'd come up with things and I'd be like, 
ooh, does that work? And then I'd be like, right, you know, how about like this? And then he'd send something and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that really works. You know, there were things to do with the floodlights because you've got little floodlight tiles in that game, which... Uh, which you flip over and suddenly, you know, there's this big orange tile there on the board. Yeah. And that that is something that that just works so much better than I imagined it would work when I was thinking of it. Um, but yeah, so but with this team, there are more of us. There's also more that I'm thinking about as well, because mm. there are things which I am not good at. And one of them is marketing. You know, we had a big marketing meeting, you know, the uh the other week you know we were all sort of you know meeting on zoom and saying right you know we've got this thing right you know what what do we do you know how do we do this and really I realized that that my instincts in marketing were quite different to to some of theirs you know we had actually loads of different people in the room really you know there were you know there were four of us I think on that call and we had four different opinions about things which can be really useful when you when you can lean into that and say okay let's use this what does this actually mean because there are things which I you know there are things which just are not instinctive to me you know the elevator pitch is not instinctive you're probably discovering that from the amount I'm waffling. Um, <laughs> but also the, uh, the other thing that was really non-instinctive to me was uh, newsletters via email, just because huh. that's, that's not something I do very much. And I'd been doing an occasional blog, which had been sent out to people via email, but I hadn't been promoting that at all because why would anybody want an email about something? Uh, but some people love emails, so... Huh. It's just one. Yeah. <laughs> I've been recently reading my emails more than I've gotten, which is new. But well, so, I only have like 20,000 unread emails. So, so people are responding well to, to your uh, newsletters though. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, you know, yeah, they, are, they do like, um, people like the Facebook group as well. But again, that's often about the types of audience and some of that's about generational stuff for you because Facebook is at a particular, uh, well, quite a wide generational reach, but it's not the teenagers. You know, the teenagers are not so much on Facebook. Yeah. So so are you using TikTok or, or what, are you, what else are you doing <laughs> with, with your marketing then? We haven't stepped onto TikTok. Uh, we are doing, uh, so there's uh, some of Instagram, some okay. of Twitter, and some of Facebook. And we've basically gone, let's use those three platforms plus a website, which is basically a landing page plus newsletters. What's the website? So, librarylabyrinth.com. There we go. Yep. There you go. See, you are there better you. at marketing than I am. You are <laughs> definitely better at marketing than I am. <laughs> and then what you do is you go, hey, Christopher, you're probably going to put that on the screen, right? LibraryLabyrinth.com? Yes, I am. Yep. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> See? <laughs> you have far better marketing instincts than I do. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about um, being careful with how you depict your characters and, and mm-hmm. all that. Um, so do you have people on your team that are – you mentioned to us when you responded to us that you have cultural and identity consultants. Are they on your team or are you also bringing on additional people in addition to those that are currently on your team? We'll be bringing on some additional people. Um, so okay. we're speaking to people about specific cultures, you know, because while we as a team can cover some of the world, it's by no means all of the world, you know, um, so, yeah, we'll be speaking to people about specific characters, you know, uh, from their culture. And we'll also be uh, speaking about some which are less geographical. So, for example, this game. Um, so there will be trans women involved in this game, which is something where we need to get somebody who is a trans woman themselves to mm-hmm. say, oh, you know, does that look right to me? Now, of course, this is all going to be personal. You know, this is all, you know, quite subjective, but it's still really important that we get, you know, multiple subjective perspectives on it rather than just saying, oh, yeah, looks fine to me, because that's not a recipe for success. Right. That's valid. I've I've looked into designing before and representation and with classes that I'm familiar with and stuff like that or people and, Mm -hmm. and I'm just, I get worried about it 
but it's very valid to be to just get a lot of different viewpoints because mm. every, it is very subjective per the individual. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, how will you deal? Because uh, it, it's hard sometimes. How will you deal with uh, cultures that are essentially dead now? Um. But like. Because mm-hmm. we can't get hurt? somebody from Mesopotamia. Yeah, you know, yeah. You can't get you know, somebody you, from Mesopotamia. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get an Akkadian to come out or a Babylonian to give you their input on it. So, how, how does that That's go? That's very true. I mean, to a certain extent, we can get a historian to do that. Um, so, okay. you know, so we are talking to a couple of history teachers as well. Okay. Uh, to say, oh, okay, you know, you know, does this does this look like it should look? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, so there are some experts who are not from that culture because that culture no longer exists, mm-hmm. which hopefully should, you know, cover as much as we can. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean you're, you're doing a lot more than some bigger companies have done, <laughs> unfortunately. We're uh, trying, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I mean, that's the only thing to do is laugh at this point because some of them have, have been uh, just doing whatever they want willy-nilly. Um, so I have one question that I've been pondering mm-hmm. about the game. Yeah. I assume, see, this is one of those, this is a kind of a joke. I assume since the, um, since you will have um, expansive representation of all these different mm-hmm. cultures that the library is in Britain, right? Oh. It's trouble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Should we have a little sign at the top of some of them that says stolen from? <laughs> there we go. We'll come with little stickers. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, not stolen. Yeah. Stolen from dot, dot, dot. And you can yeah. write in your own thing about where we stole it from. There you go. Will that be a stretch goal? Maybe. I would, um, I would, I would throw in to make sure that that one got mad. Donated by, you know, donated with air quotes. Legally, we don't have to return this one. We are um, uh, custodians now. Yeah. Um. But these are not necessarily first edition books. You know, you know, you may well be, you know, be having, you know, someone coming out of, you know, a book which is, you know, which has got many representations. You know, who says that you can't have, you know, you can't have, you know, 50,000 Joan of Arcs coming out in different libraries across the world, you know, from your history section. Well, that like would that. be something to see. Maybe, in fact, there is a skill that some of the cards have that they can mimic another card. So, uh-huh. so, so, yeah, you do, in effect, have two, you know, two Joan of Arcs or two Lady of Shallots or whatever. So, yeah. I like, I'm excited. This is, this is something <laughs> I wish, I wish that I was recording at home so that. I could have my daughter wave, as we said beforehand. And then in that one, then I get hyped up when the game's on Kickstarter. Easier sell for the family to yeah. throw some guns at it. Is it going to be available in the U.S.? Um, we very much hope so. I mean, okay. yes, it will be. Um, so we basically, we don't yet know how exactly we're going to be fulfilling the game. Um, you know, we might, you know, supposing that there are, uh, 500 copies made then we'd be doing it from the uk you know supposing that that uh, uh yeah that 500 people want to buy it we'd be getting the whole lot delivered here from wherever um with disarm the base i actually took that from multiple places we had the main game made in china and then um we had lots of the components were were put in afterwards um so that all got delivered yeah. to my spare room and shipped out by yours truly. And that was a very long few weeks back in yeah. December 2019. Um, it's possible. It's possible, but I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Um, but supposing that it's more than about 500, then we'll be looking at something else, you know, mm-hmm. fulfillment straight from somewhere else, uh, which would make it slightly easier for the, for the U.S. Yeah, fair. Um just real quick and, and we can end on this or something else if, if you want to add something else, but um, how do you integrate sustainability into what you're doing? Uh, is that easy to do? Is that difficult to do in Britain, especially with Brexit now happening and, and everything else? Um, how, I mean, I mean, is it even possible yeah. to, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, we have, so we have looked around for people who make boards here in the UK. And 
I found one person who makes, uh, you know, who makes enough for prototypes, but doesn't do large scale production. You know, yeah. it's actually really difficult to to domestically produce boards, which yeah. means obviously after this, I am just going to be making card games. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there are some bits which which do really need to come from somewhere else. And I'm not quite sure where they'd come from. It may be China. It may be somewhere else. Um, to a certain ex- well, you know, to a certain extent, you know, you can cut down on the plastic. You can say, let's have wooden meeples. Let's not have little plastic minis. Uh, let's go for you know for cardboard components. Let's not go for a plastic insert. You know, there are little things which make little differences. You can also factor in more time for it to be shipped rather than brought by plane. You know, some mm. people do bring by plane, you know, particularly for the smaller quantities. You know, supposing it's only, you know, 500 or 1,000 copies of a game, then mm. it's perfectly possible for it to go by plane. But, you know, that is definitely less environmentally friendly than sending it on a ship, you know, which takes much longer. But, yeah, you know, to a certain extent, you've just got to say, okay, right, this is something which, you know, which will cost some carbon. and. Mm. Yeah, that's difficult. It's difficult to square. You know, we're trying to reduce it, but it is some sometimes a little tricky. I mean, the hope, right, is that you're creating a game that people will enjoy for years and years and make it more worth it than something that they're going to play mm-hmm. for only a little bit of time, right? So Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, which actually I found with Disarm the Base, was that I made sure to go for a factory where they were reassuring me that it was all made there rather than somewhere where it was made elsewhere. And, you know, that is because there are concerns about, you know, who is making the game. Absolutely. You know, whether, yeah, you know, so, I mean, we'd very much like to have things made by companies which have, you know, which have unionization, which I think is not as common in the States as it is here. I mean, most people are members of unions here. I've been a member of a couple of unions in different jobs, and it's, kind of expected in many roles so private workforces in the united states only seven percent of them are unionized whereas i think it's 33 percent of public sector jobs are unionized here yeah wow that that sounds really low um so i don't know i work in a field and i can't even join my union it's harder Um, to join a union for a lot of fields in the u.s than it is to yeah yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um, well, it's Garbo, man. On a, on a fun note, <laughs> on a fun light note, I, I enjoyed uh, the the color selections that I'd seen so far for Library Labyrinth for the meeples. I always prefer wooden meeples anyway, so that, that was cool to see. Excellent. A vote for wooden meeples. Yay. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to make sure that they work uh, for different for uh, for different color blindnesses, for example. Yeah. And you're yeah. definitely for disarm the base. Then we found that by making the green more of a sage green, then mm. it kind of made it a different color completely to the red for most forms of color blindness, which was really interesting. You know, it was funny what sort of small changes you could make because you know, it was clearly green, you know, for me, <laughs> right. but it just changed the color completely for other people. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Getting outside of your own view of the world. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So anything else you want to share? We really appreciate your time. Thanks for talking about Library Labyrinth and Descent Games and everything you're doing. Um, Yeah, this is your chance. Maybe I should get maybe I should just get better at marketing. I should say, come join our Facebook page. You know, we have a community page where we're doing all sorts of artwork things. Mainly you get to choose what extra bits I put on the boards next. (laughs) Jess, put a globe in this room. Jess, put some, you know, a chess set in this room, (laughs) etc. You know, Jess, make the chairs blue. (laughs) So, yeah, come join our Facebook group and you can make all sorts of exciting decisions like that. Fantastic. I like that. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. Excellent. Appreciate, appreciate your time and uh, yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, I, I really hope it does well. Uh, do, you, do you have a date in July that it starts or just so July? I, 
think I might have put July the 5th on the Kickstarter, but I'm not 100% sure. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll share it again on, on our different channels when we see uh, the, the date announced for sure and all that. So thank you. Thank um, you very much. It's you. been lovely talking to you. <laughs> Enjoy talking to you too. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. You've just been listening to Boarding Games Season 2, Episode 13, as we talked with Jessica Metheringham about her upcoming game, Library Labyrinth, as well as her experiences in the board game world. Thanks for listening as we continue to explore the tabletop gaming experience. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitch, Twitter, and YouTube. Happy gaming.